welcome to this episode of the Sex Plus Health Podcast. My name is Sydney and I am an intern at the American Sexual Health Association. Welcome to part three of our Disability and Sexual Health series. Today's episode is on health disparities, sexuality, and research. To help us learn more about this topic, we have a very special guest. Dr. Laura Graham Holmes is a clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Okay, pause. <laughs> Do okay, I say uh, the letters? Which letters? Oh, kidney? For C-U-N-Y. Yeah. Um, oh, that's a good question. I usually say CUNY. It's the City University of New York. Okay. Okay. Cool. That helps. <laughs> All right, I'm going to restart that sentence. Okay. Dr. Lair. Laura Graham, oh my God, this is how my day is going. Um, okay. Dr. Laura Graham Holmes is a clinical psychologist and assistant professor at CUNY Hunter College in the Silberman School of Social Work. She is a nationally recognized expert on sexuality and relationships for autistic people. She has published 30 peer reviewed papers. Her passion is co designing peer facilitated interventions with and for autistic people on aspects of life that are important but under-supported, such as healthy relationships, sexual health, LGBTQIA+, identity, and substance use. So welcome, Dr. Laura Graham-Holmes. Thank you. All right, so we're going to jump into some questions. So this is a question that I'm asking everybody. Um, what are some myths about sex and disability that you think are important to discuss? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. Um, I think that you'll probably hear this from other folks too. Um, but I think that one of the big ones is that, um, people with disabilities are too vulnerable to the emotional and health risks that are inherent in having sex, having partnered sex, um, to be able to have sex and that they need to be protected from sex to avoid those risks. I think this is especially true for people with um, intellectual and developmental disabilities. Um, and my sort of refutation of that myth is that, um, you know, um, for a long time, for decades, disability rights movements have been highlighting um, this idea of the dignity of risk. Um, so the idea that being allowed to take risks is important for our personal growth, our development, um, and our humanity. Um, we all take risks and learn from our mistakes. That's just part of life. Um, and, uh, you know, people with disabilities deserve to to have the same opportunities for growth. Um, and so sex education and the conversation and actions that our families, you know, engage around um, sexuality over the course of our lives are meant to give us the information and skills that we need to make informed choices about um, having sex, having partnered sex and being in relationships. And um, so it's so important, I think, for disabled people to receive sex education services and um, have their families talk and teach them about sexuality and sexual and reproductive health across the lifespan so that they can, you know, be prepared to take these risks rather than being protected from um, 
you know, these, these aspects of our humanity, which are so important to, you know, adult, adolescent and adult life, I think, and our quality of life. Yeah, I think that's really important. You like the right to take the risks that abled people do all the time. Right. And to make mistakes. Yes. To sometimes get hurt and learn from that, you know, that's life is, is that relationships don't always um, proceed in a linear way and end when, you know, two people die at the same time or something, right? Like sometimes they end and sometimes things happen and it's um, just part of your your skills as a person to navigate that. Yeah. Another one that I want to mention is an idea that is um, very insidious that people with disabilities aren't good sexual or romantic partners or wouldn't make a good partner. Um, and I think like nothing could be further from the truth. Someone with disability, I don't, obviously, I don't really like this myth very much. Um, but I think, you know, there's been a lot of efforts um, toward uh, emphasizing the idea that diversity is critical to our society because with a lot of different perspectives comes innovation, excitement, passion, progress, and just looking at things in a new way that we wouldn't have looked at them before and problem solving in a new way that we wouldn't have problem solved. And um, I think like if I teach a class on disability, it's um, I love having people with a lot of different, you know, perspectives and levels of experience with disability to talk because that's how we have the best, most exciting conversations. I think in science, this is especially important. Um, and so if you're, if you are disabled or you're not disabled, having sex or being in a relationship with someone with a disability can be, I think, sort of exciting in the same way. Um, you might have to, you know, work on your communication skills and communicate about things that you might not have thought about before, like how to make sure that everyone's, um, you know, comfortable and not in pain. Although I think that's something that everyone should be communicating about. Um, and But in that way, I think it's like almost like you build it's a way, you know, it's just like you would build extra skill um, and and problem solve. And, and those things are like keys to intimacy with someone, you know, like a lot of communication and problem solving together. Um, and I, I also, I recently read this little um, thing in the New York Times in their Modern Love series from a woman who uses a, a wheelchair and her experiences with dating. And, um, you know, she said she that there's this idea that she's going to require caregiving in a relationship that other people wouldn't require or will require support in a relationship that other people want to, you know, wouldn't require. Um, and that's like some not fair to a partner. Um, and she says, everybody needs all kinds of different supports in a relationship. Um, and what we need will change over the course of our lives, you know, and, um, there's no reason why the support that someone who uses a wheelchair or who gets emotionally dysregulated or has executive dysfunction or whatever um, needs is any more impactful to their partner or like undesirable than all the other kinds of support um, that a partner might need over the course of their lives. So I really appreciated that um, that perspective on it. Yeah, I also think it's um, important is that just because somebody is not disabled for most of their life doesn't mean they won't get a disability. And it's kind of like, should you, do you think somebody's partner should leave them if they, if something happens to them? 
Right. Like, right. Are you saying that they're suddenly less worthy of their partner because something's happened or there's been an accident or something like they're still just as worthy of their partner or to have a partner? Right. Still just as worthy of love. Yeah. And yeah. yeah and care. And, you know, all of many of us, um, if we get married, take a vow like about sickness and, and health. Um, and yeah, you know, most people are going to experience disability at some point in their lives. Um, and so most people are going to have a partner that has a disability, you know, at some point in, in their lives. I know I was pretty disabled by being pregnant with twins. Um, and I would have been real upset if my partner had decided <laughs> that he couldn't care for me at that time. Um, so, yeah. In general, the rates of sexual abuse of people with disabilities is significantly higher than those without disabilities. What do you think needs to be done to address this crisis? Yeah, thanks for bringing this up. I think it's a really important um, issue. And there are a, a couple of things that I want to say. One of, <laughs> you know, some of it is about preventing. Um, I've also I guess we can start with preventing. Um, so I think the most important way to address sexual abuse is to teach people to stop abusing people. Um, um, you know, there are some people for whom this is kind of a crime of convenience. There are some people out there who are specifically looking for vulnerable people who might not be able to communicate what's happening to them as well, or who may be less likely to be believed. Um, and who think of disabled folks as like not human enough to warrant um, consent and dignity. And I think, you know, to combat that, we need to um, give people ways to communicate about their comfort and about um, how people are treating them um, however we can. I think we need to um, take really proactive measures and places like group residences, schools, and summer camps where, um, you know, people can be on, like, in, in, you know, close to people who are in authority over them. Um, we need to believe people when they do disclose sexual abuse. That's a really big one. Um, I still remember reading this New York Times story where um, it was, like, about who the police believe, and it said, you know, the police tend not to believe someone if they don't make eye contact, don't tell a coherent story from beginning to end, and uh, don't show the kinds of emotion that the police are expecting them to show. And it just made me think of the um, autism diagnostic observation schedule where those are all, you know, traits of autism, um, um, you know, just telling a narrative differently than other people might and, you know, showing emotion differently and using eye contact differently. And so um, it, it was very upsetting to read that. So believing people when they do disclose, um, punishing people who abuse, I think, um, you know, I think there's, I think a lot of focus should be put on that. Um, and and just um, also educating parents and, and caregivers and family and loved ones about, how to, you know, the fact that they should be asking about background checks um, and things like that, you know, at places where their loved ones are and just 
talking about what is the what are the protocols that are put in place to prevent abuse and just not assuming that everyone has thought this through and has good protocols in place um you know and and i i guess i'm i'm here sort of talking more about people with intellectual and developmental disabilities um but i think also like people with physical disabilities um who are adults can think about these same things. And a lot of times we sort of put the onus on people to avoid being abused. And so I really want to emphasize that like, right? Like we need to be teaching people not to abuse people. Um, I don't think there's a lot of training. There's a ton of staff turnover in a lot of places for, you know, for jobs that serve people with disabilities because pay is so low. Um, it's, it's really difficult for them to attract and, and keep people. Um, and so those are, you know, huge places where policy can play a role in protecting people, like make sure that, you know, caregiving for people with disabilities is pays as much as working at McDonald's <laughs> and, um, you know, try to, try to keep a, a trained workforce, um, and then, of course, there are, you know, a lot of ways that we can empower um, children and adults with disabilities um, to report abuse when it happens. Um, and I think how we do this sort of depends on how someone learns and communicates. Uh, you know, for example, if someone uses a like a, an alternative or augmentative uh, communication, um, an AAC device to communicate, making sure that they know the correct names for body parts and they have a way to communicate using their device. Um, I have looked through some of the, you have to essentially like go out of your way to find the sexuality related pictures that go with some of those um, devices. And so do that <laughs> and make sure that people understand how to report because otherwise something could be happening and, and you know no one will know. I think also a really important piece of this is the idea of bodily autonomy. Um, and just because I've been talking for so long, Sydney, do you do you want to say what? Do you have a good definition for bodily autonomy, or what do you think? Um, okay, so to me, bodily autonomy is being able to make decisions about what you do with your body and also being able to um, make decisions and say no if you don't want something to happen, whether that is somebody touching you or not wanting to hug a family member at the holidays. Right. Like, nobody should be forced to do that. Yeah. Um, that's just like a very simple example of like, that is bodily autonomy is not being forced to do something or not having something done to you. Yes. Yes. Thank you. That was an excellent, <laughs> that was better than I could have done. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It makes me think of a time when one of my family members who's like a very progressive person in general um, was, was trying to get me to hug um, a child that's, that's like a God child to me. Um, and I was like, ask him, like, do you want a hug? And he said, no. She was like, oh, that's why I like get in there and I don't know, like basically do it anyway. And I was like, no, <laughs> no, you know, I, I don't want to. So 
Um, I think I think the idea that we can start teaching kids very young, you know, like I have um, two year olds and we always ask them if they want to be picked up and put in their high chairs before we put them in there and they get used to that and usually they say yes and sometimes they, you know, run around for a minute and then say yeah, yeah, and we put them in there and it's fine. Um, you know, just giving just giving kids as much choice as they as you can. I think um, for people with disabilities, um, this is often really tricky because there are times when you need someone to, um, I think especially for intellectual and developmental disabilities, but I know this happens a lot for people who use uh, mobility aids and things like that too. Like, um, you know, you need them to be examined by the doctor. This is true for my little kids too, for any kid really. You need them to sort of... Um, be okay with something a little bit unusual happening when they don't really understand the context. Um, and so I think in a lot of cases, you know, historically, we have really focused on um, compliance, um, particularly for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. I remember one of the first like groups I ran, um, my supervisor at the autism clinic told me about this and said like, yeah, you know, you, you meet, adults um, who are autistic and they tend to be very passive um, and because they've sort of been taught that um, through the special education system. And so my goal for this group with them was just to like give them choices, even if they chose pizza every time, um, like, or even if they, you know, didn't, weren't super excited about my lesson about food safety or whatever it was I was teaching, like just to give people lessons and have them choose, let them like, it's important to me that what we're doing here is something that you choose. Um, I talked to a school recently that I was, I really admired a lot, like a, um, a school near where I live um, for autistic people of all ages, basically. And they said that they were looking to develop a class that was just about like trying a lot of different things and identifying whether you like it or not, not like uh, trying a lot of different like activities like your pottery or whatever, you know, like just a lot of different activities, identifying if you like it and expressing if you like it or if you don't and if you want to do more of it or if you don't. And it's such a simple thing and you would never think of those, you know, of needing to teach those skills necessarily for people um, who don't have disabilities, but teaching, teaching even those basic skills of like, do I like this? And, you know, how do I communicate that um, to other people? Or how do I communicate that I don't like it? Um, and it's, and, and while navigating all the nuances of like, sometimes I have to go to the doctor or sometimes I need like personal care help is really difficult, I think. And I thought families have a lot of support in doing that. You know, also another thing that I think is really important, Sydney, is this idea um, that sex is for pleasure and should be enjoyable. Um, oh yeah. Not, right? Not something that comes up a lot in sex education. No. no. And even myself, I made, I wrote um, with Sikas a call to action for including um, youth disabilities in sex education. And it doesn't say pleasure once in the whole document, which someone pointed out to me after we published it. And I was like, oh, <laughs> this is such a really good point. Um, have you heard about that idea before that pleasure should be part of sex education? 
Yes, I have. Um, especially in like my classes and stuff, since I'm studying reproductive health. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, no, like they don't even, that's not included in sex education for people without disabilities, never mind people with disabilities. I think, I think it needs to be included. Yeah. Why do you think it's important? Well, I think it's important because, I mean, currently most places teach abstinence only yeah. sex education. Um, that is ignoring the fact that people will have sex. And also, I think it does kind of, um, when they do talk about sex, they talk about it's this bad, dirty thing. They kind of make it so that's not something you want to talk about. So if something is uncomfortable or is painful, and I think that oftentimes they're kind of taught is like, well, that's because it's not something you're supposed to do. Mm. Like, I think there's this, it enforces like a culture of shame around mm. sex. So if sex is not like pleasurable or anything like that, then I think it's like, well, then, um, not well, then you shouldn't be having it, but, um, that it's like you're not told that it's supposed to be like that yeah so then you don't know if you need to address something with a doctor or your partner because you don't know that right. it's not supposed to be uncomfortable or painful right. so i think it's really important to know that sex should be pleasurable and it should be fun and you should enjoy it yes yeah Yes, thank you. I definitely agree. And I, I think, um, you know, people are afraid to, like, tell young people that sex is pleasurable um, in the same way that they're afraid to tell them that drugs are fun. But I think it really cuts out a lot of the context for, like, why someone would be, I don't know, like, the pressure that you get to have sex or have sex without a condom. Um, I think it cuts out a lot of that and it doesn't give people sort of a way around those things. And, um, and it's just sets people up to, to not understand that if someone's making you uncomfortable mm -hmm. or coercing you to have sex, then that's not good. And you should, you know, not be in a relationship with that person. You should um, tell someone that that's happening. It doesn't really set you up to understand all of those dynamics and really look for red flags. Um, so I think I think it's really important. That's just the foundation. Is that you know, it it should be fun. <laughs> it should be fun for you. Um, and if it's not, then something needs to change about that. And as you and I both know, but and maybe people listening don't know that there are uh, reproductive and sexual health care access disparities for people with disabilities, including autistic people. Why do these exist and what do you think needs to be done to improve health care and health care access? Yeah, this is I'm really passionate about this topic and there are a lot of great researchers doing a lot of work in this area. I really appreciate that the um, that the National Institutes of Health are funding a lot of research um, about sexual and reproductive health and pregnancy outcomes. Um, 
to uh, for people with disabilities. So that's great. We can move forward in this way. Um, I think that, you know, these health disparities where people are, for example, like autistic people are less likely to get pap smears when indicated than um, non-autistic people, even when they're as likely to get flu shots and other preventative care measures. Um, and I think that this is connected to those myths that we talk about that disabled people, you know, aren't interested in sex, don't have sex, um, you know, wouldn't be able to find a partner, all of those myths. And I think I, I hear all the time online, like disabled people talking about how um, doctors say things like, well, obviously we don't have to worry about this for you and just very like belittling, demeaning things like that. Um, and there are, are a bunch of different, um, you know, layers to this issue, so many different layers, um, you know, from, from people needing guidance on how to seek these kinds of healthcare. I know there are some programs that take people to Planned Parenthood, walk them through the building, let them meet the people who would be doing, um, you know, these kind of like healthcare procedures beforehand, like a pap smear, for example, um, and just give them a really thorough idea of what's going to happen. Because when you don't know what to expect, that's really difficult. Um, so there's there are programs like that. There are a lot of resources like that that are coming out. Um, there, uh, so that's like on the individual level, um, and then there's like the the train the training level for providers too, right? So um, I think disability is not part of um, the curricula in the way that it should be. I can say that as a psychologist who's in a school of social work and teaches about disability, um, you know, in my training, there was not a lot about disability aside from identifying it. Um, I know that in social work, which is people, you know, in child welfare systems who are in schools, who are at all levels of society, like social workers are everywhere. There's not a lot of um, teaching about disability, um, and there's even less about intellectual and developmental disability. Um, and <clears throat> I think it's pretty similar for physicians. Um, so I think that uh, <laughs> requiring training um, in these areas is a good place to start. Um, and also just, you know, we all are affected by these societal myths. And so having disabled people be part of general education, having disabled people be part of sex education and health education, showing disabled people in materials, um, in sex education and health education. Um, you know, there are only uh, three, maybe, states in the country, in the U.S. that mandate that able youth are included in sex education or provided appropriate sex education. So um, my hope is that people will advocate for that to be uh, more widespread. Um, there's no reason why. And it, not to pretend like sex education is great everywhere. In some places, it's, <laughs> it's probably better for them that they're not receiving it and hearing all of those, you know, um, incorrect myths about sex, you know, and generally want people to be afforded the same access to these services as anyone else. Um, and I think, you know, even for people with mobility impairments, maybe your other guests will talk about this. Um, there are, you know, 
difficult to find an OBGYN office that has like adaptive tables and a way to really provide that care um, in autism. I'm not going to pretend like this is easy. Like I know that physicians have so many different things they have to be trained on. It's really difficult to have, you know, it, it's not like they have um, unending time and money. Um, but I think that making making more training available. Um, I think with access and like quality of care, um, I do agree about the provider training. I referenced this in a previous episode about the um, only 17 17% of OBGYNs had any training in medical school about caring for people with disabilities. And 80, over 80% of them believe that because of that, that um, people with disabilities are less likely to receive comprehensive care. One other thing I was thinking about this morning as I was thinking about coming here and talking with you is the fact that feel like there's this idea that disability is niche or like someone's going to pursue that training. I think a lot of times the people who receive um, training in disabilities are pediatrics specialists um, because, you know, two, three, four decades ago, many people with disabilities did not survive to adulthood. Um, and the, honestly, the, the mortality, the, I mean, the mortality rates now are, are too high, are way too high for people with disabilities. And they are, it's just shocking the kind of, um, you know, healthcare disparities that there are. But many people, I mean, Down syndrome is a really good example of this, where many people used to um, pass away from heart conditions and things like that. Um, premature babies, I have two myself, um, you know, uh, they, um, uh, you know, the care has just improved so much that younger and younger babies are able to survive and many of them will have disabilities of some kind. Um, and so, you know, people are growing up and the, the transition from the child to adult healthcare system is, is very difficult for many people. You know, you go from sort of a warm cocoon where there's a lot of support and your family is expected to be involved to just kind of like, I mean, every person listening to this podcast has probably had difficult experiences navigating the adult healthcare system. I know I learned a ton um, through having my own kids and being pregnant, and it was just really eye-opening. Those are, are difficult parts of this, too, and there are really not as many adult providers who are specifically trained to be disability specialists, and it's also just not included because I, I don't, it's just, I think it's considered this sort of niche thing. And I, I've taught social workers who end up in my like elective class on IDD. And it's like someone who does HIV outreach. And he's like, I'm just here to sort of, I think it's probably because this is an elective that's at the right time for him. And he's there. But then over time, you know, you realize, oh, not only is my or can my organization do outreach to people with IDD who do need these services as well, but also we're already serving people with IDD. We're just not doing it well. Um, you know, they're just, we're not thinking about it. You may need more training. And so where do you go for that? And I think that these big organizations like ACOG really need to um, provide, you know, resources for people because this, this isn't some sort of niche thing, you know. One in four. Um, people have a disability, and then I think it's one in five women 
have a disability. So one in five for reproductive age. Yeah. And I mean, autistic people, you know, the, the CDC estimates that 2.21% of U.S. adults are autistic. The CDC estimates that one in 36 children in the U.S. are autistic. So, you know, those children are all going to grow up to be adults. They're all going to grow up to be teens and need to start getting their first, you know, sexual health discussions and pap smears. And we need to be prepared to offer, you know, the same health care that we'd offer anyone else. Um, and that is just autism, you know, by itself. There are so many other disabilities. Um, so. Yeah, and going off of that, um, many autistic and um, disabled people identify as LGBTQ+. Um, what are some ways that this impacts their sexual health and healthcare access? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, so yes, many people um, who are autistic or who have other disabilities are transgender or are, um, we might say, um, sexually diverse or gender diverse. Um, and we, I think a lot of the research to date has been focusing on like, well, how many, which is a good foundation. Um, and we are just going to learn and how are they doing? Um, and so there was a great um, couple of studies out of um, the National Survey on Disability and Health, um, Anna Wallach and um, Jean Hall uh, published these studies and they found that, um, you know, comparing autistic LGBTQ plus people to non-LGBTQ plus people, um, the people who were autistic and sexually diverse or gender diverse reported more poor physical health days per month. They were more likely to use tobacco. Um, they were more likely to report unmet healthcare needs um, and were more likely to report being turned away by physicians from care versus um, people who were autistic but not um, sexually diverse or gender diverse. And why is that? I think, you know, we need to do some qualitative research and find out why that is. They had the same insurance networks, so it wasn't that. Um, they were the same levels of employment. Um, a follow-up study looked at the laws in each state that protected LGBTQ people. This was really smart um, to find out how that affected people. And they found that autistic LGBTQ people um, who were in a state with more protective laws um, that protected them from healthcare discrimination reported fewer unmet healthcare needs, and I think were less likely to be turned away from care. And so, um, I mean, this is like my one speculation is that physicians feel that you know autism by itself might be something that they don't have a lot of training in. Maybe they haven't had a lot of training in. Um, you know, caring for people who are sexually diverse or gender diverse. And then when you have the intersection of those things, they feel, oh, this is out of my scope. I'm not sure how to help this person. I think the same thing can happen with things like substance use. Um, you know, it's like autism by itself, substance use by itself, put both together. Nobody, nobody has that training, you know, um, no one's, it's not going to be within anyone's scope if it's not within yours. So, um, so part of this is just helping people feel more comfortable 
providing the care that they already provide, I think. Um, and part of it is helping them be more comfortable, you know, providing uh, care that is affirming for sexually diverse and gender diverse people, or at least, at the very least, not harmful, <laughs> not, you know, having them experience a lot of misgendering and things like that. I think, um, you know, I think both autistic people and sexually diverse and gender diverse people come to a doctor's office with a lot of experiences in healthcare that have not been validating or affirming and have been potentially harmful. Um, you know, a lot of um, just heteronormativity where it's assumed that you're going to have a certain um, gender of partner or it's assumed that you're a certain gender, misgendering even if you try to let people know what your gender is. Um, and for autism, I mean, people are told by physicians all the time that they don't seem autistic or, um, you know, oh, and, or, you know, oh, nobody else has this complaint about, um, you know, the lights being too bright or, you know, all the sensory overload or, or like, no, you can't have your support person, you know, in the, in the office with you, just all kinds of things. Um, and so people, you know, those make people not want to come for preventative health care and, that is a place where health disparities can bloom. And so people who have both of those identities and have had both of those sets of experiences, I imagine that's, you know, um, affecting whether people want to go to the doctor <laughs> or not. Yeah, no, that's really interesting about, um, I think the concept is called like the double marginalization. Like if you have like one thing, but then you have something else. And both of those parts of your identity get essentially like substandard healthcare. And so if you combine both of them, it's even worse. Like if you have more than one of these like factors or identities that contribute to poor healthcare or then having two or three makes things even, even worse. You know, doctors being like, oh, you don't look autistic or that's not true. Um, yeah, I've definitely got that from so many people, whether it's teachers or doctors or family friends. And I'm like, but you don't know everything. Right. You don't know what's going on inside me. And to, to sort of, and well, for one thing, we've really focused on doctors, or at least yeah. I have been saying physician and doctor, but so many people in healthcare, like I don't see a doctor very often. I often see a nurse practitioner or a different kind of nurse. I, I probably talk to the front desk staff more than I talk to anyone else. And so many um, people play a role in this could benefit from um, training and resources and even just time to learn. There's also a lot of opportunities for policy changes and changes within organizations. And um, there are so many disabled people out there who are excited to talk to you um, for money, <laughs> for you know, paying for their time and expertise about how your organization can improve, how your rooms can be more sensory friendly. Um, or accessible in other ways, how you could, you know, your website could be more accessible. I mean, so many people are excited to, to work on this. Um, so I think any organization or, or individual who doesn't know where to start, like, you know, you can consult with disabled people 
um, and they can help you learn where to start. All right, I'll move on to the last question. So, well, it's a multi-part question. So um, the overarching question is like, what is the research? How can research support advocacy policy and programs? So how can it be more inclusive? Yes, um, I think I'll start with um, the inclusive part. Um, mm -hmm. And this is the same thing that I just said, basically. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, I know that most of the, the groups doing um, disability research who I really admire, they all work with, you know, they, they are doing community-based participatory research or community-engaged research at some level. Um, no one is able to do this research well without having disabled people um, be an important, having important roles in on the research team, whether that is from, you know, the start, right from the start, um, helping design the research questions and, and um, telling researchers what priorities are important um, to, you know, helping to figure out, you know, how to make data collection instruments more accessible and how to interpret the data. Um, I had a study in um, medical records recently, and I was so excited to have access to this data, um, working with Lisa Crowen at Kaiser Permanente North California. Um, and we were just looking at basically, um, you know, health diagnoses for autistic people who were in this set, this data set. So there were about 4,000. And then there were some people who we identified as being gender diverse or sexually diverse. And we compared those to the people we hadn't. So the people we were calling cisgender heterosexual. Um, and we know we missed some people. But um, I worked with a wonderful team um, of autistic people for this project. Um, and, you know, they recommended that we add so many diagnoses that were just really important um, and coming up a lot in the discourse. For example, PTSD, so obvious that we should add that, right? Because obviously there's a lot of trauma in these populations. Um, and that's, but I just kind of crossed my mind, eating disorders. I know that's a really important one. I had forgotten about that one. And there were a lot of like hypermobility, chronic fatigue syndrome, um, fibromyalgia, and just chronic pain conditions that they recommended that we add. And we found um, a lot more um, pain and chronic pain in these, you know, doubly minoritized populations basically compared to this gender heterosexual autistic people. And they helped so much in interpreting what we found and thinking through how people get their health care. And it really would not have been, a, you know, it really would not have had the same power um, without working with that group of people. So I think that's, you know, um, the place to start. But an issue that we come up with against a lot is that sometimes we end up working with the same autistic people um, over and many of them are also um, academics, which is fine. That is one perspective, but it's, I think it's also very important to think about diversity, making sure you're not only hearing the voices of people who are privileged in some way or within your network, but how do we build capacity um, for you know, people in the community to participate in research. So I know that um, Emily Rothman at Boston University has a PCORI project that is um, teaching the basics of research to um, autistic people who are also people of color so that they can, we can have more participation um, from those groups on our advisory boards. And I know that um, 
the RRP, um, the Autism Intervention Research Network on Physical Health, created a research basics training. This was mainly Maria Masolo and Reed Kaplan um, who created this training. Um, and Morgan Hunter, and this is available for free for anyone to use. Um, we tested it out with a group of um, autistic people just in a community, you know, center, um, and just basically teaching people, you know, the basics of research so that when when you connect with people, um, they can understand how to contribute to the research more, um, rather than just, I don't know, <laughs> rather than just being there as a token, um, how can people really really contribute. They need some training. So um, so I think that's an important point there. I really think of the research as, um, as amplifying what's happening in the community. And, you know, to do that, we have to ask. <laughs> um, yeah, I really think, like, research can really inform advocacy policy and programs, but also that, like, advocacy and programs and people with disabilities can inform research. Yeah. I have had this brought home to me in so many different ways over the years. Mm -hmm. Like um, when I first did research on sexuality and autism, um, I mostly did like online surveys and I mostly recruited through parents. So I would get a lot of autistic men answering those surveys. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I later recruited, um, usually when you recruit autistic adults, you get more um, women and um, people assigned female at birth in general um, who participate uh, in your research. And um, I don't know why that is, but that's just how it is. And when they did my surveys, they were like, why are you asking about this stuff? Because I had, you know, like, oh, I've seen what I thought was important on the first surveys and I put it on the second surveys and they were like, you like are acting like only men are autistic basically. And it was such <laughs> a huge call and so it's so obvious that I should be um, you know, list, like have people involved in my research with me, um, that it's always really stuck with me. Like, and thank you to, um, those women who were willing to take the time to email me and let me know what they thought about it. Um, this is why I work with <laughs> the community. You know, if you're not, if you're not listening to the, I don't know, like, I think, I think yeah. online discourse is really helpful for researchers who want to, who want to get a sense of priorities and, and, um, get some ideas from people. And if you are only focused on like what's being researched, then you're just in a little silo, you know, you're not gonna, I don't know, have as it's, it's the same thing we talked about at the, at the top, like the diversity and all the different perspectives and the innovation like that can come from the community. You know, it doesn't come from sitting in my office and reading. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Laura Graham-Holmes. Um, can you let people know how they can learn more about what you do? And we'll have all your information in the episode description. Sure. Um, people can find me on the um, Silverman School of Social Work website um, and can Google my name and look for me. Um, uh, I am happy to send anyone articles um, that I've written or talk with anyone. I love to hear from people um, and I love to connect with people who are um, doing this work in the community. And um, every time I talk with someone, uh, I learn a lot of new things that help me um, and hopefully I can be helpful to other people. I'd love to know what kind of trainings people are interested in and that kind of thing. So, um, so please get in touch. So thank you so much.